The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, and in this case, movie reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, who would be totally up for dating a girl with blue skin, and with me is the chief architect behind the reconstruction of the rainbow bridge between Earth and Asgard. My co-host... Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. Yes, and we are back after a short hiatus, so we're excited to be back with you. And also back with us, by popular demand, is the notorious master of magnetism. Hey everyone, it's Michael J. Petty. Yes, Michael's back, and Nico's going to tell us why Michael is back. On this week's episode, if Dan's introduction didn't give it away already, we are going to be reviewing three of this summer's biggest blockbuster movies. Thor, X-Men, X-Men First Class, that is, and Green Lantern. And before we get to that, Nico does have some TV news for you guys. The major networks have released their fall schedules, including all the major premiere dates. We have links to each network's announced premiere dates on the Facebook and Twitter pages. As the new Harry Potter movie premiere inches closer and closer, the studio is in full advertising mode, and we seem to be getting a new TV spot or preview every other day. So as they become available, please keep your eyes on our feed for the new promos for this summer's biggest movie. I can't wait, and I'm sure you all are just as excited as I am. In fact, I just finished showing all seven movies over the last two weekends in my very own Harry Potter marathon that concluded this weekend. Wow, exciting. It was fun, let me tell you. The new Thundercats animated show premieres July 29th on the Cartoon Network. Please join me in saying, Thunder, Thunder, Thundercats, oh! Yes, cannot wait. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. I think, Michael, you said you are as well. Oh, yeah. Yes. Felicia Day, my geek crush, will be guest starring this season on Eureka. I cannot emphasize enough how good this show is and how you should be watching the sci-fi summer programming because it really is better than the rest of their year's programming with Eureka, Warehouse 13, Haven, and now the new show, Alphas, which is going to star our favorite Nigel... What was his name? Vincent Nigel Murray. Murray, Thank you. In his new Alphas. New seasons begin Monday, July 11th, so check them out. Also, more movies news. The news from the Hobbit movies is coming out fast and furious, with new casting news like Evangelina Lilly or new photos from the set almost every day. Keep up with us on the new news every day on our Facebook and Twitter page. Nice. The Comic-Con schedules have been released. And as I'm sure you all know, Comic-Con this year will be the weekend of July 21st through 24th, ATA will once again be doing a Comic-Con review episode after the event at some point, but keep an eye on our Facebook and YouTube pages for the panels, interviews, and other videos coming out of Comic-Con later this month. Yeah, definitely, Across the Airways is going to be a great place to get news on everything 
going up involving Comic-Con. And between Nico and Michael, we're going to be posting up the panels that occur during Comic-Con regarding our various shows up that whole week during Comic-Con. So keep your eye out for those things because we're going to try to keep you as updated as we can with everything that's going on that weekend. And that's this week's TV and film news with Nico. And real quick, one question about Felicia Day. She's also going to be in the Avengers movie, right? Is that what rumors are saying? I think I saw something about that. Uh, I don't know for sure. Okay. Uh, I think she's going to play S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, or should I say sword agent, Brand. Abigail Brand. Uh, That is correct. It has been confirmed. And that is a character that was created by Joss Whedon for the Astonishing X-Men comic book. Nice. So that's pretty cool. Yes. Very good comic. And since we're on the topic of comic books, we're going to start things out with talking about our first comic book movie, the surprise smash hit, Thor. The powerful but arrogant warrior Thor is cast out of the fantastic realm of Asgard and sent to live amongst humans on Earth, where he soon becomes one of their finest defenders. And Thor, for me, as Nico and Michael can tell you from our several conversations, was a superhero movie that I was really apprehensive about. Because, one, even though I'm a hardcore superhero fan, I've never really been into Thor comic books because they've always come off as a little bit far-fetched to me. And that kind of goes along with my second point, is that really I thought with this movie, the elements that made the Thor comic so outrageous to me, such as like things like Frost Giants, the Rainbow Bridge to Asgard. Cross the Rainbow Bridge of Asgard, where the booming heavens roar. general way that Norse gods talks was going to translate really bad to the big screen because they've tried this in television animation with several of my favorite animated incarnations of the Marvel heroes and it really didn't work it kind of bothered me so I was like if it didn't work in animation how is this going to work it fell and honestly right at the beginning of the movie I kind of cringed when the narration from Anthony Hopkins as Odin first said frost giants But then after we saw how cool the giants looked and that awesome fight scene a few minutes after that where Thor flew through the mouth of a giant creature. You want to see this? You alright? It's in his own hands now. It was enough to buy over a superhero fan like me. And. Where did he come from? Name? He said it was Thor?
your analysis. This movie was a lot better than any of us thought it was going to be. How'd you get inside that cloud? Also, how could you eat an entire box of Pop-Tarts and still be this hungry? This drink, I like it. Another! This is going on Facebook. Smile. You know, after watching the main Thor feature, I went out and watched the new animated film Thor. And who are you, really? You'll see soon enough. God, I hope you're not crazy. Will you swear to guard the lives of the innocent and preserve the peace? I swear. I will destroy their kind. You can't kill an entire race and die with them. These people are innocent. I have no plans to die today. some of the trailers and reading some more information about the movie that kind of went away. Alright. But that was really my main fear, fear about him. Well, would you say he was a combination of the different incarnations they've had of Thor over the years in the comic books? Yeah, and I'd also say, go so far as to say that he was kind of an original take on the character as well. Okay. Because I've read flashback issues of Thor from when he was a little kid and then read normal Thor comics, and he's really not as headstrong and arrogant as he is depicted in the movie. So I thought that added to the character. Now, did you guys, either one of you guys, have a problem with that going in? Did you think his anger was a little over the top? I mean, the one scene that kind of bothered me with it was when he flipped the table. I thought it was a little much, but then after that, it seemed to make sense to me. I agree with that. Uh, at the time, when I first saw it, it felt childish. And so later when it was shown that he was being arrogant and showing that he was immature and had not learned from his father, his, you know, his great warrior father and also great king of a father. He hadn't learned the skill. He had learned fighting skills, but maybe not so much the skills he would need to be the great next king. I now take from you your power. I cast you out! So it made much more sense in the totality of the circumstance rather than just in the moment. So you thought the flaws were conveyed well then? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that scene. Did you have any more on that? or? No, I think he hit the nail on the head. Okay. And I really think what kind of pushed this along and made kind of his flaws more acceptable or we were able to see them fit within the constraints of what we're looking at with the movie was once Thor was sent to Earth. Oh, no, this is Earth, isn't it? Where did it come from? I mean, I really think this is what sold the audience over on the movie. Because this was the point where I felt that the film's screenwriter and director, Kenneth Branagh, who did an excellent job, by the way, was able to show their mastery of the material that they had been given by having the people on Earth, such as Kat Denning's character, she was the kind of goofy sidekick to Natalie Portman's Jane Foster scientist character. You know, for a crazy homeless person, he's pretty cut. And then we had the kind of the wise scientist character, played by Stellan Starsgard. The fact that they were making fun of some of the more cornier aspects of the Thor universe, 
to kind of allow the audience to almost laugh with the movie instead of laughing at it. You dare threaten me, Thor, with so puny a weapon. What? He was freaking me out. And I think other concepts that kind of helped Kenneth Branagh get the audience to laugh along with this film included the whole sequence of various people kind of trying to pull Thor's hammer out of the ground. And kind of every expression on Chris Hemsworth's face throughout the movie indicating that he was having a great time playing the God of Thunder. And I really think the fact that he was having such a good time spread contagiously to the audience. Plus, I thought it helped big time kind of having that action-packed sequence where Thor breaks into the S.H.I.E.L.D. facility to get his hammer back. You made my man look like a bunch of minimum wage mall cops. That's hurtful. And then we had Jeremy Renner show up as Hawkeye. I mean, come on, a cameo by one of the Avengers, that was pretty awesome. And that was the first in two cameos of movies that came out this summer that made my jaw drop open. We'll get to the next one in a little bit, but I thought it was awesome that they put Hawkeye in there and made me excited for the Avengers. And I'm glad that they took the care to give an opportunity to bring a character in like that in the Thor and remind us this Avengers movie is coming. I thought they did a great job with that. So where were you guys at with the Earth scenes? Uh, I thought Jane Foster was a little underused. And yeah. I think her character was very developed, I guess. Yeah, and, and we got a note about that. But, I mean, was there... I mean, were there good things? I mean, did you feel kind of this idea of the laughing with the movie mm -hmm. instead of laughing at it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, Cat Dennings was really funny. Thor got pretty good. I mean, his whole experience on Earth was interesting because, I mean, you never really have seen that anywhere. Yeah. You've seen him more as the big god of thunder superhero guy on Earth. You haven't seen him as an actual human on Earth. Okay. And that's kind of the take they put onto it. Well, I was amazed at how funny they made it. Like the string. Yes. There were some great nights in the hall. Was it a boiler maker thing? Drink, I like it. Another. Where he's drinking with the scientists. That was great stuff. Uh, Nico, what do you think of the humor? See, I have to disagree with you guys a little bit. I'm okay. usually a Cat Denning fan, but I really couldn't stand her character in, in this in this film. This is going on Facebook. Smile. And I, I don't think she helped the humor or helped what you were talking about to make it laughing with the film rather than at the film. Where I, I do think Stellan Skarsgård, as he uh, played the perfect mentor to Natalie Portman's character, yeah. I enjoy, enjoyed him as Dr. Eric Selvig who, as I said, was a friend and mentor to Jane Foster, and I feel that he was more successful in adding humor and helping the audience laugh along with some of the Norse mythology rather than at the movie, you know, making fun of the movie. Okay. So for that part, I do totally agree with you guys, but I was not a fan of the Kat Denning character. And Michael, what you said about Natalie Portman, and Dan, you have a note about it, so I assume you'll get to that next, yeah. was that I thought she was woefully underused and could have done much better or used been used more, and it was a waste of a great actress. Okay. But you felt that the approach of what they tried to do with the humor worked. It's just that Kat Denning's character didn't work for that. Kat Denning did not work for me in this film. But yes, absolutely. The humor was there. If you looked at it with her and Stellan uh, working together, then yes, yeah. it was very successful. Yeah, that's where I was coming from on it in the 
looking at it. And I okay. also thought that hammer scene where everyone was trying to pull out the hammer was outstanding. That really sold people on the movie as well. Absolutely. And Jeremy Renner, I am a huge fan. So seeing him come in and do a cameo was fun to see. Well, he'll be awesome in the Avengers, too. Yeah, he will. Yeah, it's a great casting decision. And my friends and I that I watched the movie with, we were debating if that was something they added in after they were done shooting everything and they slipped him in, you know, in post-production. That was a debate we were having about that. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not sure either. They could have done it either way. They may have had plans for him prior to shooting and him been in the plan all along, but they could have just done a couple re reshoots with the uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. I forget the actor's name, but uh, the main S.H.I.E.L.D. agent in this, this film. Uh, Clark Craig is the yes. actor's name, yes. Okay, and then a couple reshoots with him and they could have slipped him in very easily, like you said, in post-production. So, I don't know. It was very well done, so you want to give them credit and say they had it planned all along, but yeah. either way, it looked great. And the Agent Coulson character, played by Clark Gregg, who I just mentioned, I really like that they've been consistent with him throughout the Iron Man movies and have him in this Thor movie as well. It was good to have that familiar face and that consistency will help us when we go into the Avengers movie. Yeah, he's a cool character. And what's even cooler about it is he's made for these movies. He wasn't, he's not a common right. character. But I like seeing him. I enjoy the character. I enjoy watching him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But anyway, going on, and this was brought up before, as for the issues I had with the movie, I thought Natalie Portman as well, who is capable of being a really excellent actress, didn't really seem to make the role of Thor's uh, love interest the scientist James Foster Perone. I mean, believe me, I enjoy looking at Natalie's Portman just as much as the next guy, but with this role, the way she played it, they really could have gotten anyone except Megan Fox, and that's kind of a prelude to our Transformer episode to play the role, and it would have been fine. And going along, or speaking of the Jane Foster's character, I felt like her romance with Thor moved a bit too fast with the kiss that she shared with Thor before he returned to Asgard, being too passionate. But as me being the screenwriter and trying to justify everything that the writers do, I want to chalk that up to Jade being almost completely overwhelmed by Norse gods being real, and those emotions causing her to overreact with that passionate kiss. Again, that's me trying to relax myself on the fact that there aren't writers out there that would completely drop the ball in a romance. But that's kind of my thought process there. Also, kind of on this note, the whole thing with Thor lauding to see Jane again after destroying the Rainbow Bridge to defeat Loki, I wouldn't define that as him being lovesick, but rather like being a kid at summer camp who developed a relationship with a girl and returned home wondering what it would be like if living far away from each other didn't prevent them from continuing their relationship. Again, I'm drawing upon this conclusion because I felt that the end of this movie was incredibly open-ended. But basically that was okay because we know that the Avengers and now Thor 2 are going to be coming out soon. And that's my last point about the movie, and I'm going to throw this out for the group here, is that the portrayal of Loki, did you think that the newcomer actor who played Thor's arch-nemesis was good or bad? 
my friends who went to film school with me at Columbia said they thought he was good, but other friends who would be considered as average film goers felt that Tom Hiddleston, who has only had an experience as a British stage actor, was terrible. So I don't know where you guys were at with the Loki character and Jane Foster. Um, you can throw out a little bit more of your thoughts, too. I thought it was very well done. I liked it. Tom Hiddleston was exceptional and played the duality of Loki very well. I'm not sure why your friends, other friends, may have had issues with him. Maybe they were unaware that he was supposed to have sort of a radical change of character as the story went along and felt his portrayal was inconsistent. That's a possibility. Um, But I thought it was pretty excellent. Me too. I really did. I guess that comes from me understanding the character a little bit better. Which is funny because you and I, we might know more about Thor than the next guy, but we're still kind of an average Joe when it comes to this. Right. So, I mean, you again, you said you understood the, the duality, but again, you may know that somewhat from Norse mythology as well. Yeah, I think, Michael, you might have the best insight to him because you do read the comics. Mm-hmm. And well, you liked him, didn't you, for the most part? Oh, yeah, I really do enjoy the Thor comics. They're very different than um, any yeah. other comic or any other literature, I guess, that you'd read. But, I, yeah, I thought uh, Tom Hiddleston uh, did really well with Loki. I thought he hit the character really well, or he played him really well. His speech pattern sounds a lot like how I read Loki, because, you know, when I read comics, I kind of hear their voices in my head, and that's the kind of voice I hear, I guess. I don't know if that's weird or not. I'm character. But... No, I hear them, too. I, I get you. <laughs> I think that's, that's what we all do. But, yeah, no, he um, did Loki exactly like I've always read him, and, well, he's a lot more menacing in this film because he pretends to be, like, the ultimate brother, I guess. And he cares about Thor and all that, or at least says he does. But in reality, he doesn't, which in the comics isn't hard to distinguish when he does or doesn't. But in the movie, it was a little harder to, I yeah. guess, if that makes sense. And I think they may get an opportunity to explore that more when a Thor 2 comes out or if he's going to be the big villain of the Avengers movie. Yeah, he's going to be in the Avengers, I think. Okay. I'm pretty sure. So I think we may get some more exploration of that. I thought the scene between him and Thor, and when Thor was arrested by S.H.I.E.L.D., mm-hmm. I thought that was an excellent scene between them. And that was the one where you got that, does he care about Thor or does he not care about Thor? I thought that was the scene that was the closest to hitting it on the head. Well, if I were between movie, that, yeah, if I were just like going to the movie just because I thought it looked cool, I don't think I'd know the difference. Yeah. But obviously, since I read the comics and I kind of know how the movie's going to turn out, overall, I knew that he really didn't. Now, what about this Jade Foster robot? Do you guys think it moved way too fast? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I hope my romance with Natalie Portman moves that fast. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, no, it, it felt rushed. You could tell she was mesmerized from the moment she went back to the hospital to talk with him after having hit him with the car, knocked him unconscious, and then left him at the hospital. But, like, she was almost awestruck with him, you know? And so, from her side, it seemed maybe less unrealistic, but the fact that he fell for her that fast did seem pretty, I don't know, well, I quick. Think, 
I think yeah. Thor would go with, with like Sif more than he would her because he's known Sif forever. And just, exactly. It would make more sense. I agree with that. It was fast. And that's the thing. It was kind of a bummer because I thought Chris Hemsworth was really great as Thor. And again, as I said before, it seemed like he had a really great time in the role. I enjoyed watching him. I saw the movie twice uh, because I had two groups of friends that wanted to go. And I enjoyed him both times. And the fact that we didn't really get a good romance or we didn't really get to feel the connection between them was kind of a disappointment. But I think plans are to have him with Sif after everything's all said and done with. Well, Natalie Portman isn't going to be in Avengers. Right. So, And they haven't really confirmed anything for Thor 2, except that it's happening. Yeah, so I think that relationship is either a break apart or it's going to be Thor came to Earth and didn't find her and that ends the relationship. That's what I'm going with. How about sure. Transformers 3, she was mean. <laughs> yeah, they're going to allude to that. Now, I heard an interview with Allison Hayslip from G4 and she was talking about she and Chris Hemsworth have been good friends for a long time, long yeah. before he was ever anybody. And so she ran into him when on a, a plane flight back from London and they got to catch up and he was talking about just how much exactly what you said, Dan, how much he loved playing Thor and very much so he was a kid in the candy store the entire time. Yeah. And you could tell on screen that he was just loving playing this guy. And I love that. I think that's what made the audience love the movie so much. And it made it fun to watch. Well, it helped. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, that fight scene in the beginning, he seemed to have a really good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty awesome. He's just like, I'm Thor. I get to wield a giant hammer. This is awesome. I have a Thor hammer now. I throw it around my room. It's awesome. And I heard the same thing about Kenneth Branagh, that he's a huge Thor fan. So the two of them together and them being that excited about it really just was like lightning in a bottle and gave us a really great film. Right. When you think of Branagh, you don't think of comic book. You think no. of Shakespeare. So for him to move from Shakespeare to something so radically different, you knew he had to have passion for it. Otherwise, yeah. he wouldn't have done it. I agree. And again, I think we may get to see more of his love and taste for Shakespeare and some of his abilities with that as a Thor 2 comes out. I don't know about that. I think I saw somewhere that he is not attached to Thor oh, 2. Bummer. That's I, too bad. I do think I read that too, actually. That is okay. exciting. That's a yeah. I know there's not a whole lot out there about Thor 2 right now. Yeah, but things could change in, in the near future. That's disappointing, because I would have liked to see where he would have evolved this. Because I think with this movie, he gave us a little bit of a taste of what the world of Thor is like. They kind of played it safe a little bit just to get people invested in the world. And I was really going to think he was going to turn things up with the sequel. But we'll see where that goes. We can hope. Yeah, that could change. And again, I mean, Marvel's putting all their focus on the Avengers movie right now. Right. I have a feeling that Thor 2 is kind of an afterthought at this point. But speaking of the Avengers movie, did you guys stay after the credits? Yes. Yes. I wanted to bring up the whole thing with the scene after the credits where Nick Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson, shows up that he's in possession of something called the Cosmic Cube. Oh. And this Cosmic Cube 
is actually going to be the center of the Captain America movie that's going to come out in a few weeks. And we're going to actually review that on Across the Airwaves in a future episode. But that's what the villain in that movie, the Red Skull, and his Nazi forces will be after. And it was interesting with that final scene that it almost alluded to the fact that Loki may be one of the major villains in the upcoming Avengers movie. Or was that the Ice Cube? That was the Ice Cube. Okay. That confused me a little bit. It's in an Asgardian temple, or some kind of Asgardian building when it's first discovered in Captain America, supposedly. That's what I've heard. Well, I saw a picture, actually, of Captain America, and it shows, like, a skeleton holding the cube. Okay. So I assume that's where they find it. Yeah, I think it transforms Red Skull into what he is, too. Do you know what color it is? It's a clear cube that lights up. It's kind of like a prism. Okay, but it doesn't... It's not red. It is red in the comics. Okay, Okay. because the ice one we saw in the movie was blue, for sure. And so I assumed that this one, the cosmic cube, would have been red. Is it associated with the Asgardians in the comic books? Uh, We're on the Wikipedia right now, Michael's. (laughs) Comic book researcher. Tear this up. Just created by him. Just created by okay. But it appeared in Captain America stuff later. Okay. Okay. All right. So it was created by kind of a terrorist group that Captain America fights, which is kind of accurate to what the movie is going to be. Okay. But as for the scene, I uh, I thought it was one of the better post-credit scenes. Uh, it seemed to be more than just showing us, like the one in Iron Man where it showed the hammer out in the desert, mm-hmm. was good. But at the same time, it didn't really give us any story. It just was, I think we found it, you'll want to see this. And Yeah, it was a tease. This was more in-depth of a tease, and I liked that more. And I think we may get an even bigger one at the end of Captain America. Oh, yes. Either he's going to get broken out of the ice, or however he's put into suspended animation in the movie. I'm not sure. Unless it's the beginning. Right. I'm not sure. Will the Captain America teaser be for the Avengers, or will it be for the next Iron Man? I would say Avengers. Okay. They're putting all their focus on the Avengers right now. Because it will be the biggest superhero movie of all time to date. I mean, they're really going to want to hype it. Okay. So we covered on Thor. Anybody have any other thoughts they want to throw out there? A lot better than I originally thought it would be. Same with me. When I started seeing the trailers and then I saw it, I was hooked. And if you're one of those people piped up about the Avengers movie that haven't seen this, go see Thor. Yeah, you have to. Because there's a lot of plot threads that are going to be important to the Avengers movie. So definitely see this so you have every piece of the story going into the Avengers movie. Because I think it'll make your enjoyment a lot better. And again, all this Asgardian stuff, I was very, very skeptical about it. And they did an excellent job handling it all. So, hats off to everyone involved and definitely give this a watch. All right, we're going to move on to another movie that I was a little skeptical about, but actually turned out to be a big surprise the movie X Men First Class. In 1962, Charles Xavier starts up a school and later a team for humans with superhuman abilities. Among them is Eric Leshner, his best friend and future arch enemy. X-Men First Class was a movie that I pretty much 
wrote off when it came to this summer. Because the last two X-Men films kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. That I was disappointed that the movie was not going to feature the original team of X-Men, a.k.a. the first class. Which, if you didn't know, they include Cyclops, Iceman, Beast, Angel, and Jean Grey, who at the time was known as Marvel Girl, instead of the character that she is known to become, Phoenix. However, after seeing this movie twice, now I can proudly say that X-Men First Class literally blew my mind both times I saw it. Through this movie, improving upon aspects of the X-Men universe that I didn't care for, or bringing story concepts that were only described in the comic books to life in an incredibly well-thought-out fashion. And what made this expansion slash improvements on the X-Men universe so effective with audiences was the performances by James McAvoy as a young Professor Xavier and Michael Fosbender as a young Magneto. In my opinion, the scenes between these two guys throughout the entire movie were great. And many of them were on the level of Batman and the Joker facing off of the Dark Knight. Which is something that especially goes for the scene where Xavier shows Magneto that he has the power to turn around a satellite. Again, with that being said, McAvoy was great as a younger, flawed Xavier. But I think Fosbender was a little bit better because he made Magneto just darn cool. In a Wolverine-like fashion, with the support of a well-placed guitar rift that I think should be played every time the character of Magneto appears on the screen. Whether it be in a movie or on a cartoon show. So with that, I'm going to throw this up to you, Michael Nico. What were your thoughts on the Xavier Magneto dynamic and these two excellent young actors that played Xavier and Magneto? Dan, unlike you, I had been looking forward to this film since I first heard about it. While many were hesitant about the use of James McAvoy as Professor Xavier, I was eagerly anticipating this younger look at Professor X, sort of Xavier before he was Professor X. And let me just say, I loved it. James McAvoy was superb. While no one can ever replace the legendary Patrick Stewart, James McAvoy was brilliant as a younger, more flawed, as you said, uh, Xavier. And I I loved it. Yeah, I I really thought both actors did great. I know Michael was really psyched up about Magneto. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Well, first of all, going into this movie, I wrote, I don't know how many months back, an article about all the superhero movies and stuff coming out this summer. on the ATA page, right? Right. Yeah. And... I have to say, back then they had no promotion, there's hardly any info on it, and I was not looking forward to it at all either, like you, Dan. I thought it was going to be terrible and a disgrace to the X-Men movies. Yeah, I was wrong. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm not afraid to say it, I was wrong. But, uh, Professor X and Magneto, I thought, were very Clark and Lex-like. Yes. Like, they listened to each other sometimes, but they had to go their separate ways for their own reasons. And obviously Clark and Lex got more angry with each other and distant than Professor X and Magneto. Right. But the tension's still there. And how the movie ended with Professor X and Magneto, it could go either way. 
Yeah. Between I agree with that. I described the movie to someone as very Smallville-esque. Mm-hmm. That you went into it thinking that this was an Elseworlds story that didn't connect to anything. You know, with the I guess it connects to those the movies that came previously. Mm-hmm. But that's also an Elseworlds thing. Right. So if you went into it that way and realizing this is an origin story and some of the things before that were lame or kind of corny aren't going to be there, that this was a really good movie. The problem is we had another origin movie as an X-Men origin Wolverine that wasn't that great. Not a great comic book movie. It was a decent movie. It was a terrible comic book movie. And so it's like, oh no, they're going to do another origin story. This is going to work. Especially when a lot of people make the argument that Professor Xavier and Magneto are kind of lame. I felt that Matthew Vaughn, the director of this movie, got those characters and did what needed to be done to make them cool. Mm-hmm. Now, do you agree with that, Nico, with that whole idea I had of it, that it improving upon or expanding upon great ideas in the comics? Do you think that was successful, this movie? Absolutely. I, I thought some of the things that maybe changed origin stories uh, from the comics specifically Mystique's origin story in this, was better. I liked it. I liked the way it worked out, and I liked the way it all uh, came together in the end. If you'd never read the comics, you would have thought that that was a realistic origin for her. And enjoyable. Really what played such a big part in making X-Men First Class, I mean, so compelling, was all those supporting characters like Mystique that you talked about. I mean, they were all played by some very talented upcoming actors. And really, the one that stood out to me personally was Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique. Now, I mean, Absolutely. those of you who may have watched X-Men animated series back in the 90s, or X-Men Evolution, you know, Mystique was that, for me at least, she was that one character kind of like Starscream, uh, Transformers. So you kind of love to hate because her shape-shifting abilities made her that one villain who was always like one step ahead of the X-Men or that thorn in their side and she used to just frustrate me to no end when I used to watch that as a kid. But here, with the material that she was given as a young mystique, Jennifer Lawrence did something that we didn't think was possible which was make us actually feel sorry for Mystique, as she is sort of kind of, I'd say, kicked around throughout this movie. And this weird, like, I want to say a love square between herself, Magneto, Xavier, and Beasts. And however, before you hardcore Mystique fans kind of get upset by this end of this movie, the blue-skinned femme fatale, shall we say, becomes the strong, independent woman that she's destined to be, but really, that doesn't come until after we get a look at Hank McCoy, Beast's dark side. And it, I felt that seeing his dark side through Mystique and him having kind of a teenage-like relationship with her was almost a necessary evil to explain how he becomes the fun-loving blue furball that we all know as the Beast. And kind of jumping back to what I said about Jennifer Lawrence, I thought this movie seemed to have kind of the same effect as Transformers, did with Megan Fox, with kind of her popularity exploding overnight. But I'm much more inclined to jump on the Jennifer Lawrence bandwagon because, yes, she is just as attractive as Megan Fox, but she is much more talented 
based on her being nominated for an Oscar for the movie's Winter's Bone, and for being the leading lady in the next big film franchise, which is based on books I haven't read, the Hunger Games novels. Plus, on top of that, I've seen her interviewed. She was on Jimmy Kimmel and stuff, and she has a wickedly awesome sense of humor as well. And also, as for supporting characters, we had a bunch of villains in the movie. We had Man Men's January Jones as the White Queen, otherwise known as Emma Frost. And in my opinion, she was just pretty much there, although she was nice to look at. But I really thought Kevin Bacon, who looks nothing like Sebastian Shaw, his comic book counterpart, I thought he made a great villain that really had the flair of a classic Bond villain right out of the time that this film took place in. And I felt this was especially established in the scene where Shaw tells Emma Frost to get him some ice. And she kind of lifts up the hatch to their submarine in order to scrape some ice off of a glacier in the North Pole. And so that was really cool. And Kevin Bacon, like Chris Hemsworth and Thor, seemed to have a really great time playing the comic book bad guy and really hit that kind of classic Bond, Blofeld villain flair, which was neat. So, with that, what did you guys think of the supporting characters? I love Mystique. Mystique was awesome. <laughs> Mystique changed drastically from every other aspect we've seen of her. But now at least we know why her nor Magneto will touch Professor X in the X-Men movies later. That helps a little bit. But yes. It, but it adds some tension between them as well. It did an excellent job justifying it, and I really felt like that was a twist like what we had with um, Heath Ledger's variation on the Joker. Mm -hmm. He kept the integrity of the character that we all know and love, mm -hmm. but he did. He made his own little twist on it, made it his own little different character, and I felt that Jennifer Lawrence did the same thing with Mystique, and Michael Fosbender did the same thing with Magneto. Absolutely. I don't know if that's too bold of a statement to make, but that's kind of how I felt. Mm -hmm. Well, I also like the other kids, like Havoc, Beast, uh, Darwin, yes. Banshee. I hated Angel, but that was just because how she turned out. Yeah, because she betrayed the team. Yeah. I did like Mariah McTaggart, too. I thought she was a good person to put in there, especially since she was an X3 and kind of had a relationship with Charles. Right. That was nice. Some of the villains were pretty cool. Azazel and Riptide were cool. Yeah, they were cool-looking, cool powers. Right. They just didn't have a lot of development at all, or speaking. But they were enough to make it really visual. Right. I think it was a good action scene, which those characters are intended to do. Right. Sebastian's shot was pretty menacing as well. It yeah. It was more menacing, I think, than Stryker. I agree. Yeah. Well, and, and you have Kevin Bacon, who's a really great actor. Mm -hmm. That can be really creepy if you've seen Hollow Man, where he's the invisible man and he kills people. I have not. It's kind of a wacky movie. I don't but he's think freaky. I'm going to. <laughs> Nico, where were you with the supporting characters? I have to agree. It was the casting and writing that made first class the film. Such a, such a success this summer, and if Michael Fassbender actually he stole the show as Magneto. Yes, without a doubt, his was the best performance. Now Jennifer Lawrence, as you said, she was magical as Raven uh, and Mystique, and yeah, Kevin Bacon came out to play this summer, and he was better than I expected when I first heard he was going to be in this film. But as Sebastian Shaw, which you mentioned, he does not look like much uh, from character in the comics he played it brilliantly and i thought it was very well done just enough goofy kevin bacon in it to 
make you smile that it's Kevin Bacon, but at the same time played the character very well, pulled out that little Bond uh, villainy that you were talking about. Yeah. And I think it was the performances of these these other actors and the great script that they were given that made this movie the best movie this far this summer and maybe the second best film of this of the summer at the end of the season we'll look back and say i think x-men first class was the second best movie of the summer i agree with that i'm totally down on that and i think the movie did better than the other x-men films where it was the whole team uh making sure each character had something to do yeah. None of the hero characters got lost in the shuffle like they did, I thought, in the first three films. You see that in the final battle. Everybody was engaged with somebody. The only person you could say kind of fell by the wayside, and this was intentional on uh, Professor Xavier's part, was Mystique. She really didn't have much of a role except for that one scene where she appeared to be uh, Shaw. But otherwise, everyone did have their part. And, and we got to see everybody get their equal share, which is always a problem with the first, second, and especially the third movie for X-Men. You see a lot of Wolverine in that third movie and only very little bits of Storm and, and the other characters. So, yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. They did a much better job in this, this thing. And I think that will be the case next summer. I know this is jumping uh, worlds, but next summer when we see... The Avengers, that is always a, a concern, but I think Joss is going to do an excellent job in giving everybody their due in that movie. And so this kind of paved the way, showing, yes, it can be done. You can give everybody their screen time without making it so muddled that you have no overarching storyline going on. So it was very well done. Well, and you can also make a really good superhero team movie as well. Yes. Which will help for the Avengers and hopefully if DC ever does a Justice League movie. But, uh, yes. I read earlier that James McAvoy, who played Charles, actually compared uh, the relationship between Xavier and Magneto to Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. And that it's kind of two different versions of fighting for mutant freedom, one more extreme and one more logical. But at the same time, each of them want the same thing ultimately. Right. Which I thought was an interesting um, comparison. I mean, That's a great comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Malcolm X is obviously a little more extreme. But if you read Magneto in the comics, Magneto kind of gets that way as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I feel like I get the sense that as he got older, he became darker. Yes. That older age seemed to just twist Magneto, take him even darker. It's like he almost, making this reference, that's going to make Nico giggle. He almost becomes more machine than man as time goes on. I mean, he also grows farther away from Charles, too. Yes. Which doesn't help. I agree, and this movie did a nice job of setting up that transition throughout all three films. Now the good thing about the third film is, though, that Magneto still wouldn't touch Charles, or if anyone were gotten mad at Charles, he wouldn't allow him to do anything. That was very good. They kept that consistent. Mm -hmm. But on that note, as great as this movie was, as much as I enjoyed it, I did have an issue with this film. There was one little thing. It's kind of me being a nitpicky comic book fan here. 
and kind of me wanting it to fit the timeline where it really shouldn't. But the problem I had with the movie was Havoc, Cyclops' younger brother, being in the movie when he should have met Xavier way after the X-Men had been established. And the other issue with the movie, and it wasn't me entirely because I just she was a bad guy and I just kind of wrote her off because of that. But I heard some complaints that the girl with the fairy wigs, Angel, who could basically spit acid loogies, was kind of dumb. But I, the way I see it, there's always that character with X-Men whose powers are a bit off the wall. So I can deal with that. And besides the problems with both of these characters, there really was nothing compared to what something that's bothered me for years, which was the horrible portrayal of Phoenix in X3. So I can buy this Havoc thing and the Angel character over what they did with Phoenix, because that was terrible and really disappointing. So that was my issues with the movie, but I can look past them. Angel's like the X-Men version of Starscream. <laughs> to me. That's a nice reference. I like that. <laughs> and kind of my last point on this whole thing with the X-Men, I just really have to say that the whole explanation of Xavier being paralyzed by a bullet from Moyer McTaggart's gun that was ricocheted by Magneto as she was trying to stop him from attacking the humans was a really well-played-out idea. Because I thought it gave a strong understanding as to why Xavier never got to the point where he married Moira. But most of all, I thought the decision to go this route in such a profound moment of Xavier's life really made the debate between Magneto and Xavier much more debatable than in the other X-Men incarnations. For example, the Ultimate Comics version of X-Men, and I think one of the cartoons I want to say, Magneto just flat out breaks Xavier's back. And I never liked that because seeing Magneto do something so cruel to his own kind automatically made where he was coming from on the mutants versus humans debate seemed like it was wrong. They kind of went away from this Malcolm X, Martin Luther King thing that Michael mentioned before. But in this movie, Xavier being paralyzed in kind of an accidental situation made me more inclined to at least try and see things Magneto's way. And I thought that was really great how they did that and really fit into the relationship what's going on between them. Plus, if seeing Magneto and Professor X's friendship chattered to pieces all around them wasn't heart-wrenching enough, we had to face that moment where Mystique makes the right decision to go with Xavier, only for him to send her with Magneto, because he knows that's what would make her truly happy. So what do you guys think of this ending scene? I mean, it was really profound and deep, and probably one of the most profound scenes that we've seen in a superhero movie. I mean, everyone knows the Dark Knight thing where the Joker switched the the addresses and, you know, Two-Face is created and Rachel dies. I know that's profound. We've had those moments in the Spider-Man movies, one and two, not really three, but those moments were very profound. <laughs> and then we had... Yeah, and then we had, you know, this scene of the X-Men movie. I just thought this was really up there on the emotions and really great. And what I mean, you guys, Nico and Michael, what did you think of it? Or was there any observations you made that I missed? It was more profound to me than any other superhero movie scene. Okay. More touching, I guess. How so? Well, I felt, well, since the whole bullet thing and all that was an accident, and he sent Mystique with uh, Magneto, I felt that there was a lot of emotion going on. 
Okay. I really felt for the characters. More so than I have, I don't think, I think in any other movie. Superhero movie. Alright. How about you, Nico? What was your thoughts on the ending scene? Or that whole moment? Yeah, I think Michael's correct. You could feel Professor X's heart breaking as he told Mystique to go with Eric or uh, with Magneto because he knew if he said, stay with me, she would have because she loved him. She was essentially his sister in this incarnation. And so he knew he could easily have been selfish and say, stay with me because she would have, but he knew that it wouldn't have made her happy, that she'd be more happy going with him and that her feelings on the matter had become clear and that her home was now in that other way of thinking. And so you could feel his heart breaking as he told her to leave. And I thought that was great. And then not two seconds later, this relationship that he had started or was starting to at least have some feelings for Moira, he ends up wiping her mind clean so that it can never be just to protect all the other others in his school. Even though he probably felt that she would never betray them willingly, he knew that it was too much of a temptation to the CIA and the rest of the government to know their location. So he, his, if his heart didn't break when he told Mystique to leave, it probably definitely did when he said goodbye to Moira. Okay. So that was very well done. And I think we see that people who had just found friends and the rest of the X-Men ultimately lost half of those people or, you know, lost Mystique and had been betrayed by Angel and kind of felt that loss just as keenly because they had thought that they had found people of like mind and who were exactly like them or, you know, at least different enough to be friends. And so when those people left, it felt like their lives were falling apart at the same time. So I thought it was very, very well done, and you could feel all that emotion in this scene. Yeah, I really felt like it was shocking to me when he first told Mystique to go, because I was just like, oh my god, Xavier, what are you doing? You're throwing her to the wolves. <laughs> you That's know? drastic. But, you know, because, well, it's Magneto. He's the bad guy, you know. The bad guys always lose. Why would you throw her to that? And then I thought about it, and I was like, okay, I got that. That there was no changing her mind. That's what she wanted. He couldn't control her. I mean, it would have been selfish for her to stay. And that goes against who he is. Does my thought process there on that make sense? Yeah, I mean, Xavier's controlling, but he's not that controlling. Right. He won't stand in the way of happiness, especially if it's the happiness of his oldest and best friend. Well, maybe not best, because that's my new well, it's, his, it's his sister, essentially. His sister, yeah. Family, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to put it. And, again, you know, Xavier lets let her go, lets her leave. But the, the good thing, I mean, at the end of the day, this doesn't necessarily go for the comics, but we know he's not alone in the movies, at least. And, yeah, uh, you know, he's got all the kids at the school and everything like that. Right. So that's a good thing. And then he gets more angry. The other thing about this, Nico, is I really thought the way you did at the end of the movie with Moira and that relationship. Michael gave me an interesting, different perspective on that, where he thinks that she did retain her memories. 
and she made up the whole idea about her memory being erased. Judging by her, what was it? Talking about the kiss, right? Mm -hmm. Well, because if he was to erase her memory, he wouldn't keep something like that in there, is what I'm saying. I think he tried to erase her memory, but some things were so linked to emotion that he couldn't eradicate it without damaging her mind. So I think you're absolutely right that he would not have intentionally left something like that in, but because she, I think she was starting to love him, and imprint of that was too much that even he, you know, one of the greatest mutants of all time, could not touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an understandable um, explanation, definitely, Nico, but I do also have to ask then, why does Xavier know them, or know her in X3 as an old friend, if he erased memory. Yeah, that... And they, it kind of hinted that they loved each other, but they weren't going to get together because they both had duties they had to perform. I wonder if, if it's almost like a mix of our two theories, where he tried to erase her memory, but was unsuccessful, as I said, and later on, she came to him and, and said, look, you can trust me, I've begun to remember everything, and I will never tell. And since she had already been able to play dumb or been completely out of the loop when she was debriefed, they never suspected her and never questioned her about it again, so she was able to keep it. And ultimately, they were able to rekindle their friendship later in life. So that's my only way of explaining it, but I, th- I think you do raise some good points uh, that I'm unable to answer. Well, absolutely. I'm some too, actually. Yeah. And that's almost like an ask the screenwriter question. Yeah. Or we may get another opportunity to get answers to things like that in an upcoming film. Then that's kind of my last point that, yes, as great as this movie is, it does end up ending on a bittersweet note for Xavier with his art kind of being broken. But the ending, as well as a cameo in this movie from Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Excuse me, I'm Eric Lynchrock. Tell Xavier, go for I thought was enough to get movie audiences excited about X-Men again. So here's to hoping that there's a rumor that this is happening, that Matthew Vaughn, the director of this movie, and Brian Singer can get things together to pull off their proposal for an X4 and 5, which I heard the studios at Fox really like. And this storyline supposedly is planned to follow the popular X-Men comic book story arc that many of you may have heard of, called Days of Future Past, potentially giving us the chance to see maybe Sentinels on the big screen. So what do you guys think of that? What do you think of seeing Sentinels and the possibility of an X4 and 5? Do you think audiences are ready for it? They're ready if they see the Avengers. As long as they bring Cyclops back, I'm cool with it. (laughs) Where are you at, Nico? Do you think it's game? I mean, I know X3 was a disappointment, but do you think they can still get something off the ground and get people excited about? Yeah, I think X-Men is is one of those franchises that people will always be excited about, even the, the regular population. And yes, you can we only disappoint movie-going audience so many times, but I think this film was enough to jumpstart it. And that scene with Hugh Jackman was brilliant. That was hilarious. I loved it. Uh, the entire theater, although Dan, you and I talked about how 
unintelligent some of my movie-going audience partners were, even they were laughing pretty hard at that scene. So I think that there is the excitement out there. This movie did enough to get people excited again in the X-Men series. X3 and, and Wolverine, or Wolverine origin story, were, you know, they were dark days, but the idea that the Wolverine, the next uh, Wolverine-based movie, and maybe an X4 and X5, I think that there will be enough interest to get those up and off the, the ground and going. And if they decide to go with the Sentinels, I think that that would be a very interesting story and would give us a clear and distinct bad guy again. I agree with that. I think Magneto will also play a part in the storyline just due to his popularity that's been generated in this movie. Absolutely. He'll play very much the same what he did in the animated series in the 90s. Exactly. Where the the government is kind of anti-mutant because of the activities of Magneto and his cronies. Very much like how X3 started, but I think it'll be pulled off much better. Okay. Well, they could also get away with something like they did in Wolverine and the X-Men, where maybe if Jean Grey sends Cyclops to the future, and he's fighting to get to the past to stop it, and you see what's going on in the past leading up to it, they kind of do a race against time sort of thing. And they said if they do an X-4, that there will be an X-5 leading after it. So, Yeah, it's designed to be a two-part story is what it is. Right. So it'd, cool. be, it'd be like, you know, a Harry Potter situation where they had to divide that last movie into two parts. And Nico, you're familiar with X-Men comics, correct? Yes. The major overall stories, yes. I have not read every episode or every uh, edition. Obviously, there's so many out there. Oh, but I, I did read the first 50 original stories, and then I jumped forward in time to read some of uh, the re-origin stories and things of that nature. Okay. All I can say is if they do this, it might be bigger than the Avengers, as much as I hate to say it. That would be really cool. It's it's possible. I agree with that. And I think a lot of what they did with X-Men is going to be thought about and looked at when the Avengers come out, mm-hmm. and what they did with this movie as well. And do you think Cable could appear if they do this x four? It could. I don't think they want to make anything too complicated. Okay. Like, this movie could have been overcomplicated, and they didn't go there. They kept it really simple. And I think they will, too, because, again, as Nico said, X-Men kind of goes beyond just the regular comic book fans. Mm-hmm. It's something everyone's excited about everywhere. Right. So. But with that, was there any other final thoughts you guys had on the movie? Or are you pretty much good? My favorite movie so I agree. So far, Captain America, that's the only one that may top it. The only one. Or be equal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, I disagree. I think Harry Potter's going to be the movie that tops well, this. Well, that's going to be very good, too. <laughs> that's going to be close. Are you guys ready for Green Lantern? Yep. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about this movie that has this awesome oath that goes along with it. Which I can and, and Ryan Reynolds as well. So let's talk about this movie. DC Comics' big first splash on the big screen, Green Lantern. Brightest day and blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. 
Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's life. A test pilot named Hal Jordan is granted a mystical green ring that bestows him with otherworldly powers, as well as membership into an intergalactic squadron tasked with keeping peace within the universe. Green Lantern is a movie that is totally worth seeing if you're a fan of Ryan Reynolds and are all about eye-popping visual effects that looked unbelievable in 3D. But if you're one of those people who are simply just about a good story for a comic book movie, Green Lantern kind of fell flat. For me personally, I enjoyed the movie because it was awesome to see a lot of the things I enjoy about the Green Lantern comics be brought to life on the big screen. But I thought it should have more closely followed the popular graphic novel Green Lantern Secret Origins, the critically acclaimed graphic novel written by Jeff Johns. Again, I understand that there were some things from Green Lantern Secret Origin that could not be brought to the big screen based on their connection to a much bigger story arc. But I still feel like the movie could have addressed what made that graphic novel great, which is the relationship between Hal Jordan and Sylvester. I mean, I know that we got that one scene of the movie when Hal was going through Green Lantern training, but I think the relationship between Hal Jordan and Sinestro should have been played off more like Magneto and Xavier in X-Men First Class, because I think that would have made this Green Lantern movie much more satisfying. Again, Michael made a convincing argument to me about the fact that they probably put the relationship between Hal Jordan and Sinestro on the back burner in favor of playing up the romance between Hal and Carol Ferris. But with this movie having a runtime of 105 minutes, again, that's what my movie theater website said. On AMDB, it's 115 minutes. So we'll go with that. And X-Men First Class being 131 minutes, I think they would have had time to do both. Both the Hal and Sinestro and Hal and Carol Ferris. But I'm not sure on that. What do you guys think? They could have fit it in, I think. Okay. They did it well in Secret Origin, like you said. Right. And you believed it. Definitely. So, as did I. But. Well, and when I read Secret Origin, I went through it like, how could this be made a movie script? Mm. And I think a lot of it would have worked and you would have had time. Mm. And I could have even incorporated this movie into it. Right. Based on my film school training, I think so. Again, I'm not an expert like these guys. And Jeff Johns is way more of an events writer than I am at this point. But I still think it would have worked doing both. Dika, where were you at with the Hal Jordan-Sinestro relationship? I know you don't have as big of a basis on Green Lantern comics, but do you think they could have done more that would have made the movie more interesting to you? Uh, yeah, it definitely could have made things more interesting. I'll talk about it a little bit later when we talk about the uh, problems with the ending that we had. But, uh, yeah, I think it would have been feasible to do 15 more minutes of film to add... Uh, one or two more scenes where we see that they were adversarial at the beginning and eventually became friends. We should have probably seen a few scenes after Hal saves Earth at the end where they seem to be more buddy-buddy than the one scene that we got for the future. But I think overall it was okay. I would have liked to seen some more. Yeah, I think the one scene we got was really good. But we should have had more. Okay, do you guys want to wait till I bring up that next last point before we go into that more? Uh, yeah, probably. Okay. 
that's fine. So with that, with me just mentioning Carol Ferris in there as well, I had to give Blake Lively, known for CW's Gossip Girl, credit for trying to bring some substance to her character rather than being just a pretty face, kind of like what Natalie Portman was in Thor. But I believe that her character would have had even more substance if they included the conflict Carol faces in the comics of really having to give up her love of being a pilot and being in the sky to take care of her dying father's company. And that kind of led me to another discrepancy I had in this movie compared to the comics, which was the character of Parallax. So in case you don't know, was the yellow cloud-like creature that Hal Jordan threw into the sun at the end of the movie. Basically, to sum it up, the issues with Parallax was that he looked nothing like his counterpart in the comics. And his backstory was kind of screwed up. But if you aren't really a hardcore reader of Green Lantern comic books, this probably didn't really even phase you. Also, I got the sense that Green Lantern fans were able to accept this incarnation of Parallax because Peter Sarnsgaard, who has a pretty big following, did an excellent job of playing Hector Hammond, who I thought was the main villain of this movie. And I thought he did a great job of playing it in a fashion that would have made the meteor freaks in Smallville proud. So with that, throwing this out there, what were thoughts on Blake Lively as Carol Ferris, Parallax, and Peter Sarsgaard as Hector Hammond? What did you guys think of them? Not stronger than Jane Foster. Okay. And I liked her a little better than Ryan McTaggart, too. Okay, I can see that. But she wasn't Jennifer Lawrence's mystique. No. No. I didn't compare that to that. No, exactly. <laughs> you can't. I'm just trying to help our listeners follow along. I really like Peter Sarsgaard. Yes. I thought he was a little creepier, even than Heath Ledger's Joker at times. When he grabbed Blake Lively's hair when she was in that scene with Carol Ferris, and he sniffed it, that was kind of freaky. Yeah. He wasn't even completely evil at that time. <laughs> I know, that was it was really weird. Um, should I talk about her? <laughs> Why don't we let Nico give his two cents, and then we'll, you can bring up Parallax. Okay. All right. So, Nico, what were you thinking of the three characters I just discussed? Well, well first off, let me just say, I really enjoyed this film. I, I'll pretty much see anything with Ryan Reynolds in it, because I kind of have a man crush on him as an actor. Yeah. But I loved this. I liked this film. I didn't love it. I, I really liked it, though. And it, he didn't disappoint me as, as the Green Lantern, no, despite many many complaints out there about maybe the CG Lantern uniform looking a little off. But I liked it. Now, Peter Sarsgaard was brilliant. He was brilliant, as, as always, as Hector Hammond. And... I enjoyed it. I thought he brought the character to life. I thought you saw his de-evolution from just a subpar scientist into the mad genius uh, ruled by fear. I thought he did an excellent job in that transformation. And I have to agree, Blake Lively, I didn't, when we talked last week or two weeks ago, and you mentioned it, at the time I had not seen the film yet, so I didn't even know who she was. And so for, I know that she was Gossip Girl, or you told me that. Yeah. But for me, this is her breakout role. And I thought as a breakout role, 
because the gossip girl doesn't even register on my, you know, my radar. I thought she was brilliant. I thought she was very good. She was beautiful. She played the love interest, I would say, even better than Natalie Portman, who I am in love with. So for that, I have to give her kudos. And I know this is a little off topic. I know you loved seeing Kilowog. Never let your guard down, Hooser. Welcome to Ring Slinging 101, or as I like to call it, the worst day of your worthless life. On the screen. Yes. Because I know he is one of your favorite characters in the Green Engine universe, and I too enjoyed seeing that because I have since watched the Emerald Knights, the uh, Nathan Fillon's portrayal of Hal Jordan in Green Lantern Emerald Knights, and Kilwag plays an important role in that, so it was fun to see him on the big screen as well. So, yeah, uh, I think I answered all your questions. <laughs> I kind of rambled on. Okay. Well, Michael had a few things he wanted to say about Parallax from okay. the comic book fan side of the woods. Um, I just thought he was a cool monster that Hal Jordan got to take out. And we just got to see him use his... There was an excuse to, you know, Green Lantern to use his raw power to take down the bad guy. So I thought that was cool. And I really took it as Hector Hammond was the primary villain. And um, Parallax was just a response to, you know, his way of fighting the Peter Sarsgaard villain. But Michael had some thoughts on that based on the comics. I know he's a fan of Parallax and they kind of did an injustice in the movie, so we want to talk about that. Sure. Well, first of all, don't get me wrong. I thought Green Lantern was a really good superhero movie, decent comic book movie, and overall pretty good movie. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the effects. I enjoyed the acting. I enjoyed the story for the most part. But my main problem with it, and I'd probably have to see it again to change my mind, was Parallax. And they kind of screwed up it. Well, no, they didn't kind of. They did screw up his origin. I won't deny it. But he was a really cool monster in the movie. He was a good threat. They screwed up his physical appearance a little bit too, but overall, like, listing myself, I can kind of get around it because I like the movie better than I thought I did talking about it. But um, mainly I think it was his origin that I got mad with because it says he's a guardian in the movie, but in reality he's um, the fear entity in the comic books. So they kind of played with that a little bit, but... I do like Clancy Brown, voice of Lex Luthor in DC Animated Universe. Yes, sir. So, I mean, yeah, I, I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed the characters for the most part. Kilowog was amazing. Komare was pretty cool, too. Voiced by Jeffrey Rush. Yes. Who's awesome. Who is awesome. I liked Adam Seer. I thought he was used just enough. Not too much, not too little. Right. And... I did like Amanda Waller, who we haven't talked about yet. Yes. she. It was cool to see her in there, because I didn't think we were going to get something like that. But she may become our Nick Fury. For the if she didn't die... DC. She didn't? Okay. She just got thrown into a window. Yeah. Lionel Luther style. Spongebob. Yeah. The end of season five, yes. Mm-hmm. Where we thought he died, but it didn't happen. But you've seen Green Lantern First Flight, right? Yes. And Nico, I don't know if you have... <laughs> I have not. Okay. Well, I really enjoy that movie, and overall, that's kind of my standard for a Green Lantern movie. 
I could see that. Because I actually enjoyed that more than I did this movie. If that doesn't make me sound bad. I mean, I did enjoy this movie a lot. I enjoyed it just as much as I did Thor. Yeah. And I really liked Thor. But Green Lantern First Flight is kind of my standard. I kind of like that more. The thing with Green Lantern First Flight was it was more about the core mm -hmm. than him in space. And this one, it tried to incorporate the Earth world in it. Right. And, I don't know, that might have been too much. Which is why I can't compare them. Right. But at the same time, I do, because it's Green Lantern. Okay. And it's, like, story-based. Yeah. I mean, Green Lantern First Flight's also, what, 80 minutes? Right. So you could incorporate Earth into them. Because I, I always feel like, you know, with the movie, you have to have... The way they do the animated films is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, with the movie, you have to do... You have to have the love interest. Right. You have to have the villain, and it has to build. And mm -hmm. You have to have a big climax and stuff like that. So you almost need the Earth aspects to make it a full movie. But, again, I think the origin story was told better in First Flight. I do agree with that. Now, Nico, as someone who's not had so much background with the Green Lantern, I mean, I know you know his power side, what you've seen on the Justice League show... But, um, did the parallax thing bother you at all, or were you weirded out by it, or did you just see it as, oh, this is just something to have a big, cool, climactic end? Well, looking at it, he's supposed to be yellow, right? Because yeah. the, yeah. the fear color is yellow, which always kind of made me laugh when I thought about Green Lantern, because fear to me would be black, which they kind of showed it in this movie as being black with a yellow core. So I didn't really have a problem with that because it made sense to the casual viewer, I think, that it would be a dark monster with a yellow core or yellow power. And they definitely brought out the yellow in it. Like One of my friends always jokes that the, the most absurd idea of the entire Green Lantern series is that he has unequivocal power only weakness is the color yellow which always made him laugh but you know if you think about it that way it is kind of humorous but um no i didn't have a problem with the way they portrayed him in this film i understood that the idea of him being a guardian turned bad was not the way it normally was told so uh that was a surprise to me when they went that route but at the same time it kind of made sense within this storytelling it was okay to me, so I understood that maybe the comic fans would not like that, but at the same time, the casual viewer might understand that better. All right, I tried watching it from two different perspectives. I watched it from my normal comic books perspective, and then mm -hmm. I watched it from like the perspective of, I guess, my little sister or something like that, someone who wasn't as involved in comic books, and... When I watched it from that perspective, I enjoyed it more, I think. Mm -hmm. And when I watched it from my comic book perspective, I got more of the references and stuff like that. So, I mean, each side has good to it. So, I mean, either way, it's a, it's a good movie. Yeah, and that's kind of what I have here in my closing notes, is that Green Lantern is a movie that was probably much more enjoyable to people that aren't comic book fans because they weren't put in a position like me where they were disappointed about story aspects that I really enjoyed from Green Lantern Secret Origins being left out. 
luckily, and this kind of goes into Nico's issues that he's going to discuss about the Hal Jordan Sinestro relationship, is that this movie ended open-ended enough for things like Carol Ferris's backstory that Hal Jordan's friendship with Sinestro to be included in the second film. But unlike Thor, the open-ended closing for this film was not as viable, I thought, because of two reasons. One, Sinestro in the scene in the closing credits puts on a yellow ring, which may mean that it's too late to do anything more with Hal Jordan and Sinestro's friendship, because he's already become the villain he's destined to be. And two, with no Justice League movie really in the works to compete with the Avengers, and the possibility of a Green Lantern 2 being somewhat of a question mark, the people behind this planned movie trilogy might not get an opportunity to improve upon the issues that existed in this movie. Right now, according to news sources, Green Lantern, despite some box office woes, has been greenlit for a sequel, but we'll see if that remains to be the case as time goes on. We may end up with a Superman Returns type situation with this, which I hope doesn't happen because I think there's more they can build upon with this. So with that, Nico, I want to throw things out to you is talk to us a little more about this Hal Jordan Sinestro friendship and kind of how it pertains to the future. And I assuming it has to do with the ending at the end of the credits where Sinestro puts on the yellow ring. As for that Sinestro ending and a lack of a development of friendship between Hal and Sinestro that we had been talking about, Dan, you discussed last week off air that there was the possibility that that scene we saw was during the credits was very much like the teaser we got from Thor, where it's actually from a point in the next film, but it's later in the film, and it could be in the middle of the story where he actually puts on the ring. And we will see more development of their friendship before his fall, if that's the case. So what I'm saying, essentially, is that the next film would start off much before that scene that we saw. So we'll see the Green Lantern Corps, we'll see Sinestro leading them, we will see him and Hal working together, becoming friends, we'll see them acting as friends, and then later in the film, we'll see that fall from grace as Sinestro puts on the yellow ring to try and combat the next evil and ultimately he becomes the next evil. But, of course, this is all predicated on the idea that there will be additional Green Lantern films, and possibly, if we're all lucky, a Justice League film in the future. But as for now, the less-than-stellar numbers in the early weeks of Green Lantern's release, those plans have temporarily put on hold, if not officially, the scuttlebutt going around the business is that there is not enough interest in doing additional even though they say that they're greenlit, I would see money drying up very quickly for those unless we see a good international release. Because unfortunately here, where I'm living, the movie does not come out until the 4th of August. So I had a very difficult time seeing it and had to see it while I was back in the States to be okay. Now, I for one hope that these films will be made and we get the entire story out because it would be a shame otherwise. Green Lantern is a great story. It has many followers. Michael is not the only person who reads this one. And and you too, Dan, I know you read the comic too. You two are not the only ones reading this. Green Lantern, especially in recent years, has, has come back in popularity. And 
it may not be Superman or Batman, but it's a great story. And it, right. if you enjoy this film, there are opportunities out there. Michael mentioned one, you know, First Flight, go and watch that. Or I mentioned Nathan Fillon's portrayal of Hal Jordan in Green Lantern, Emerald Knights. Go and see that. Even if, if you're not watching this Green Lantern five times to boost ticket sales, if you're showing interest in Green Lantern, then these films probably have a chance of getting made. Well, the other big thing about Green Lantern is, in terms of the comics, the Sinestro Corps War, which is a big Green Lantern graphic novel, as well as what I talked about with Secret Origins, and The Blackest Night, they've all been very high-selling comic books. They've been critically acclaimed. They've won DC awards. I mean, these are really great, well-written stories. So the popularity is out there, and these comic books are getting recognition. So I really hope we get the rest of the story. I just think they put too much faith in them getting a sequel with this movie than to not. Because I agree with this movie. I think there's still time to address a lot of those emotional threads or those relationship threads that we didn't have enough time for in this movie. I still feel like there's that opportunity, but again, you've got to have the money it's kind of to put where your mouth is to be able to pull exactly. things off. Well, see, as great as this movie is, and I really do like it, thinking about it, I did like feel like Dan, that they were kind of more going toward the sequel. And this is kind of like a practice run, sort of. And I don't want to say that because that belittles the movie, but at the same time, I feel that's kind of true. I they mean, played it safe with this movie, I thought. Yeah. I mean, I'd still give it this movie a solid A-. minus. Okay. Because I really did like it, and I thought it was an interesting take on Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern universe in general. Well, they were trying to make this movie as much like Hal Jordan as possible. Same. That's a throughout the geek out loud out there. And every character. Yes. They had Starfell's House of Battle, which is... Yeah, that other podcast. Uh, yes. Uh, very much so. Nico, do you, do you agree with that assessment? Yes, I do. Okay. All right. It was better than Wolverine. Yes. <laughs> I agree with that as well. But I think The Wolverine, the will next, be better. will be a much better film. Yeah. Again, Brian Singer's involved in that film, and so is a lot of the people that were involved with X-Men First Class. Oh, that's connected to the regular X-Men movies, right? That's not a new reboot? No, it's not a new reboot. It's connected to the X-Men movies. Okay. It's him in Japan. That's right. So that, that's cool. it's going to be probably Silver Samurai, some of this stuff. I think he was in a bar in Japan when they found him in X-Men First Class. Just uh, throwing it out there. Because it looked an yeah. awful lot like the set that they showed at the end of Wolverine. In the yeah. Ending. I could go with that. But they showed that. Mm-hmm. So with that, was there any final thoughts you guys had on Green Lantern? Or that pretty much sum it up? For me, it sums it up. All right. So you ready to move on to the closing, Nico? I am indeed. All right, so why don't you uh, take it away with what's coming down the pipe for Across the Airwaves in our next couple episodes. On the next couple of Across the Airwaves episodes, occurring throughout this summer, we are planning on discussing the new shows that we're watching in the fall, having our second annual episode dedicated to Comic-Con, another episode reviewing a combination of the movies Super 8, Transformers 3, and Captain America, and a special episode devoted to the final installment of Harry Potter. Yes, and also there's a lot of great summer programming on that all you guys should watch. I know Nico bragged about Sci-Fi Channel at the beginning, but there's some other great stuff, including Falling Skies. On in 20 minutes. On TNT, produced by Steven Spielberg. 
that is an excellent show. Everyone should check it out. Fun to watch. Really, just great stuff. Noah Wiley from ER, if any of you guys know who he is. He's excellent. He's really enjoyable on the show. We also got Leverage, which is kind of, it's fallen to the wayside a little bit, I think, that show. White Collar, which is so fun to watch. Little Repetitive, and a new favorite of mine, Bird Notice. These shows are all on right now, airing new episodes, and they're great. So they're all worth watching, a lot of fun. Nico and I enjoy them. Michael's enjoyed them. Check them out. We may be discussing them a little bit. So definitely keep track of all those shows. Also, keep up to date with all these new shows coming out in the fall. We're going to be trying to throw a few in to our weekly podcast episodes when we start things up regularly every week when the new fall TV season starts. So check out all that stuff. And also, if you have any speculation about any of these upcoming superhero movies, or do you want to talk about the movies we discussed today, or you want to talk about our favorite shows coming back in the fall, or Comic-Con, or just whatever you want to talk about with TV or movies, feel free to contact us. And you can do that by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. There you can access our Twitter page, which is Across Airwaves. There's no the there, there's just Across Airwaves. You can like our Facebook page. By liking that Facebook page, you are privileged to all sorts of TV news that Nico will provide for you throughout the week and also will mention on our show. You can also access our YouTube page which is run by Michael J. Petty. And he's got all sorts of promos for all of our favorite shows, movies coming out, and across the airwaves event. So check those out. Which I need to update. His videos are really well done. He's telling me right now he needs to update it a bit again. We've been on hiatus, but now we're back online and on the air and ready to go. So be expecting some stuff from Michael coming out. Also, in case I just didn't mention it, you can email us at across the airwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's across the airways at gmail.com. Also, to spice things up a bit for us, you can leave us a voicemail. What's that number, Nico? 773-809-3363. So check that out. And also, you can download an Android app for your phone on, for Across the Airways. And through that Android app, you can basically contact us in any of the varieties of ways I mentioned with a flick of your finger and also you can access all of our podcast episodes to be able to listen to them on your cell phone. So feel free to do that too. It's great stuff. So once again, for our Brain Trust member, Michael J. Petty. I'm Dan Schmidt. I'm Nick Rustic. And until our next episode, which should be in about two weeks, I would say, we'll catch you on the airways. See you soon, everyone. Yeah.
We now return to our regularly scheduled program.